This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. It just came up. How do I know what the temple needs? How do I know what the students need? And what came up for me was this, uh, this question. So with my question kind of came up a teaching that I had been turning, but I still really didn't have a grasp on. <laughs> um, and uh, this was in a book, Being Bodies, edit- edited by Lenore Friedman and Sue Moon. It was something that Fran Tribe, a student of Suzuki Roshi's, wrote in an essay. And she says, uh, in 1970, Suzuki Roshi told us, our practice was to be like a white bird in the snow, merging completely with our circumstances, meeting each person on his terms, not our own, just as Buddha had. As I so often experience with Dharma teachings, something about this got me. It got me in a deep way. It turned me inside out, as Dharma teachings tend to do. There was a big yes. How do I do that? I want to be like the white bird in the white snow. And yet, my mind couldn't grasp it. Do I do that over there with the student? Do I do that over here? How do I hear from there if I'm over here? I couldn't quite orient myself, completely merging myself with circumstances. As Dogen Zenji says in the Genjo Koan, here is the way, here the path unfolds. So where was Dogen Zenji pointing as he said those words? I kept looking. I knew the answer was close. In a lecture from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi said, when you listen to someone, you should give up all your preconceived ideas and your subjective opinion. You should just listen to her. He said him, but I changed it to her. Just observe her way. We put very little emphasis on right and wrong or good and bad. We just see things as they are with her and accept them. This is how we communicate with each other. Usually when you listen to some statement, you hear it as a kind of echo of yourself. You're actually listening to your own opinion If it agrees with your opinion, you may accept it, but if it does not, you will reject it, or you may not even really hear it at all. I believe Suzuki Roshi is speaking about a willingness and an efforting to practice a listening so deep that our ego-centering self in that moment drops away and that we're able to truly listen to what someone else's experience is, to be completely present 
and perhaps to be transformed in that process. Suzuki Roshi says, a mind full of preconceived ideas, subjective intentions or habits is not open to things as they are. This I would call, this I would call the closed hand of thought or small mind. That is why we practice Zazen, says Suzuki Roshi, to clear our mind of what is related to something else. To open the hand of thought, as Uchiyama Roshi said. Two weeks ago at City Center, we had a community council to kick off a three-day resident retreat, all of which took place on Zoom. In preparing for the council, I found notes uh, from 16 years ago when I was training as a council facilitator for the Coming of Age program at Green Gulch. And perhaps some of you are familiar with, with council form. At Zen Center, we often have check-ins and um, check-in is um, a form of, of council, uh, something that has evolved from, from that council form. Um, and council, as I understand it, is a practice that's used in many Native American communities to cultivate deep listening. Council happens in a circle, and in council, each person sitting in the circle is acknowledged as a respected and valued member of the community. Each person is invited to bring their non-interested, non-judgmental, and kind awareness to the person who is speaking. Each person is encouraged to speak from the heart and whatever arises in that moment to the question or reflection that is posed by the facilitator is acknowledged as a group collective wisdom arising. So to participate in council form, there are seven guidelines. But what struck me as I was preparing for this, this council was, was this one guideline and the instructions for it. It's um, to listen from the heart. And these are the instructions. Um, these are from my notes, so I don't know who to credit for this. But um, the instructions are to listen from the heart, suspending reactions and judgments. I don't know. Seeking understanding rather than agreement. Accepting others as they are rather than thinking they need fixing. Empathizing rather than criticizing and judging. Staying centered, calming our monkey minds staying present, not running away and hiding. I appreciate the choice that happens right there, the choice of one mind or the other. It's like an art articulation of 
closing our mind or opening our mind right in that moment, suspending reactions and judgments. I don't know. Seeking understanding rather than agreement. Again, looking for where you stand in that moment, dropping that. Accepting others as they are, rather than thinking that they need fixing. Empathizing, rather than criticizing and judging. Staying centered, staying with our experience, calming the mind and staying present, noticing that moment of separation, noticing that moment where we want to pull away, we want to step away, turn away, noticing that very moment. So last week, a, a big group of people studied with, with Okamura Roshi. Um, he led us in a study of Dogen's fascicle, Mujo Seppo, and I believe he was pointing right here to this, this choice. Going further into our grasping mind or listening in a way so open that all sentient and insentient beings are speaking their truth. When George Floyd died at the hands of police, on May 25th, we all heard his pleas that he could not breathe. We saw the video. We saw his blackness. We saw the white police officer's knee on his neck. We heard the pleas of the onlookers and we watched in long suspended horror We heard him call, Mama. We watched a human life be extinguished just like that. History was on repeat. It was familiar to so many, but this time everyone saw it. Here I say we, we saw this because whether you actually saw the video or not, you saw the video and heard the pleas, the whole world did. I believe that for many, many people, the world dropped out from underneath us in that moment. And then a roar was heard. That roar inspired John Lewis a bodhisattva who devoted his entire life in pursuit of racial justice for all beings. Shortly before his death, 
two short, two short months after George Floyd's murder, John Lewis wrote a letter to all of us. He said, while my time here has now come to an end, I want you to know that in the last days and hours of my life, you inspired me. You filled me with hope about the next chapter of the great American story when you used your power to make a difference in our society. Millions of people motivated simply by human compassion laid down the burdens of division. Around the country and the world, you set aside class, race, age, language, and nationality to demand respect for human dignity. Reading these words, I felt that John Lewis was speaking to me, passing me the torch. He said, though I am gone, this was published after he had died, he wrote it intentionally that way. Though I am gone, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. He goes on to speak about when he first heard his calling, when he first heard the words of Martin Luther King. He said, he said, we are all complicit when we tolerate injustice. He said, it is not enough to say it will get better by and by. He, Martin Luther King, said each of us has a moral obligation to stand up, speak up, and speak out. When you see something is not right, you must say something. You must do something. So the roar has quieted, but the call is still here. The call to look at and understand systemic racism and each of our place in it. The Dharma gate of racial justice is asking us, those committed to the liberation of all beings, to step through. So what is the next step? As Reverend Martin Luther King said, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All beings are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Martin Luther King deeply understood the Buddhist teaching called dependent co-arising or Indra's net or a single garment of destiny. 
the undeniable truth of our interconnectedness. What can I do from the place in which I stand? For me, as a leader of Zen Center, my work is clear to a certain extent for now. As I ask the question, what do I do as a leader here at Zen Center right now? I hear Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Zen teacher and author of Radical Dharma, do your labor. She's very clear. She hands it right to me. She called each of us in a recent Dharma talk to do our labor. Martin Luther King, be what I ought to be. I need to know my history of my country, of my family, of the organization that I serve. To look at where teachers and education have failed, I need to educate myself. I need to understand what is true diversity what is true inclusion? What is true accessibility? I can take this question into each meeting, each gathering, each committee, each conversation. I can look around who is present, who is not present, who is being left out of this conversation, whose voice is not represented. What change is needed? What is needed for each of us to be respected as a valued member, a respected member of this society, this community, this organization? How can I widen the circle and hear all voices? Reverend Angel has said that this is going to be messy there is no way around it. And actually, that helps me relax. It helps me be me. I would say that Zazen and grounding ourselves in practice of returning to just this, staying with our experience in this moment and committing to the long haul of the Bodhisattva is so important right now. It is always, but right now, so important. Committing to others, to being present as the white bird in the white snow. Right now to me, it's sounding so white, but to disappear in that way, to offer that kind of presence to someone else to listen in that way and be transformed. A dear friend of mine who's Asian American was sharing with me how she was grieving in her awakening of the depths of living in a white centered world. This was a new term for me, a white centered world. I wanted to ask, what exactly does that mean? but I didn't. I clearly understand just from her going on and speaking of what she's experiencing right now. 
always accommodating white values, white ways. The deep sadness for her that she was never able to fully, fully express her familial culture to bring that forward. She wasn't able to celebrate that growing up in America, a culture that is so whitewashed, has such a narrow definition of what is acceptable, of what is valued. As she spoke, I could feel that she was lost in a sea of whiteness and most of her friends are white. This is part of her grief. She said, white people are conditioned to fall asleep, to not understand that everything in this country is oriented toward, centered around whiteness. Because of that, everyone who is not white is de-individualized, dehumanized. She said her experience of being Asian American has been to be muted, impotent, weak, invisible. That in this spiritual community of predominantly white practitioners, white-centered Dharma talks, an emphasis on the absolute truth of one night, oneness reinforces the centering of whiteness, however well intending. I took notes. These were her words. I asked her if she could be with me on the Dharma seat today and that I would do my best to take care of her in this tender place that she's turning and she said, that is fine. To her, to that bodhisattva, her next step is clear. She's taking a much needed rest, a time for reflection and retreat and grieving and all that comes with that as she keeps turning her questions. I'm asking, what am I not seeing? I've been asking this question for years, but now I'm asking it with a different lens. What if I have been so conditioned to not see color, to not see division, that I do not hear the cries of the world? Describing her awakening to the white world surrounding her in her book, I am still here, black dignity in a world made for whiteness. Author Austin Channing Brown says, when I did hear, when I did see, I realized it is all around me. Growing up in a majority, white school, white organizations and white churches, I had to learn what it means to love blackness. And I'd like to share some words from her book, um, I Am Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Why I Love Being a Black Girl. As a black woman working in white spaces, 
my perception of racial dynamics has been questioned, minimized, or denied altogether. Over time, the experience of not being believed, especially by people I thought were my friends, wore away my sense of self. <clears throat> As I entered the professional world and sensed this happening to me, it became vital to remind myself daily of why I love being a black girl. I am enlivened by our stories of survival, even though white folks try to steal our histories, our lives, our labor, our culture, our origins. We recover the records. We find the census, the photos, the certificates, the inscriptions. Thanks to my grandmother, I am filled with stories of triumph over slavery, over lynching, over Jim Crow, because our dignity was too strong to crush. I felt the cast iron pot of my grandmother and held the Bible of my great grandmother. I sit at the feet of my elders and listen to honor to them, honor our shared past. When I begin to doubt myself, I remember that we are creators. We are pioneers of language itself. We invent new words and kill old ones. We smash syllables together and watch them reverberate across the nation. We have a language we share with one another. Though our words are stolen and often misused or misapplied, we know the depth of our vocabulary when used among ourselves. Our conversations are call and response. Someone uncolored might assume we are cutting each other off, interrupting, but all we did was move church outside the building walls. We will shout, yes, amen, and we, and you better say that in affirmation of one another. When my body stands out and I am tempted to forget my own beauty, I close my eyes and remember to feel, and remember the feel of my father's fingers against my scalp, braiding each perfectly parted row while telling me I am not tender-headed to stop squirming. There are the cooling sensations of blue magic and pink lotion and the smell of hot curling irons as I learn all about the special things my hair can do, natural or relaxed, braided or dreaded, twisted or knotted, cornrowed or weaved. Our hair believes in being free to do what she wants. When I rub cocoa butter into my skin, I remember the warmth of my mother's hands when she used to tell me to get all the hidden spots behind my ankles and around my knees. The memories of her care for my body are a reminder of the care my body deserves. Austin Channing Brown is a writer and her work focuses on genuine inclusion. Another friend, a spiritual friend of a long time, told me that she was getting ready to retire, but that actually this work in racial justice has ignited her. I suppose that's how a bodhisattva retires, with um, ignition. <laughs> When I asked Shohaku Okamura this week, what work is needed so that POC people, 
practitioners stay with the practice long enough to become teachers, he said, we open the Zendo doors wider and we go out to be with people who are suffering. Unless you really understand someone's suffering and the causes and conditions of that suffering, you cannot help them. How do we at Zen Center seek to embody diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility through San Francisco Zen Center's teachings, practice, organizational culture, policies, and operations as a manifestation of our vow to awaken together with all beings? This is our question. Shohaku Okumura also reminded us of the thousand-armed Kuan Yin, Kanon, she who hears the cries of the world. In her thousand arms, she holds But on each hand, there is an eye, a thousand hands, a thousand eyes. For unless we truly see the suffering of others, we are not of help. Wisdom and compassion are both needed for the Bodhisattva to respond. After my last talk, someone gave me feedback. They told me that they felt deeply uncomfortable during my talk. Now, <laughs> I got to be with that experience, just reading those words and seeing what happened to me. You know, did I, did I stay close? Did I go into deeper listening? Very interesting a lot of good information for me right there. She said that she wasn't sure why. So she went back and she listened to the Dharma talk. And then she gave me concrete feedback. She told me that when I used the word we, that she actually did not feel included in that we. Immediately, I kind of saw my first response, you know, of a defendedness, of a, I'm a good person, of, but me, I'm always trying to include everyone. So this was very, very, very good feedback for me. It took me a while to realize that. And then each time I go now to say, we, I try and define who that we is referring to. We as Buddhist practitioners, we white people, we, my family, we, my friends, who is that we? So this, this practice of, of feedback, that, that feedback actually keeps changing. I, it keeps coming up for me. It's so alive. I keep hearing that. Perhaps that's been your experience with feedback as well. So truly, I 
cannot see myself without you. I cannot see me. I cannot see who I ought to be unless I receive feedback. It's very important for people in positions of power to first of all, understand that they are sitting in a position of power. It's very important to invite feedback. And I think that this is one place in spiritual communities where first we don't want to acknowledge that we have power, that we have responsibilities and power that goes along with those responsibilities. And how do we set up systems so that we actually can invite feedback? How do you invite feedback in your life? And also, can we prepare ahead of time to listen in that way? When someone comes at us and they say, may I offer you some feedback? Maybe we notice how immediately we close down. Can we stay with and not run away? Can we stay centered? Can we empathize with the person's experience of, of the impact that we have had on them? Can we seek some kind of understanding rather than agreement? And can we suspend our judgments of that person in that moment? Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our programs are made possible by the donations we receive. Please help us to continue to realize and actualize the practice of giving by offering your financial support. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.